This is a Scream Queen production. Tuesday. I hope that you're all enjoying this summer weather that you wanted so bad. Uh, I know not everyone is in Michigan, but here in the mitten, it has been fucking hot for like many, many days in a row. Super hot. And I don't appreciate it at all. Um, I don't really like the heat, but it's exceptionally hot and we're barely into summer. So needless to say, Summertime in Grand Ledge is just not a good time this year so far. Summertime in Grand Ledge was also not a good time back in 1966, but it wasn't because of the heat. It was because the entire city was living in fear of the Grand Ledge Slayer. So I've lived in the Grand Ledge area for almost 15 years now, and when I came across this case through some random deep diving I was doing a couple years ago on something else, I was like super pissed. Grand Ledge had a slayer, and I didn't know about it. Turns out, though, very few people know about it. It's one of those awful slices of life that the community swept under the rug, as small towns so often do when tragedy and scandal strike. So let's talk a little bit about Grand Ledge. We've talked about it before, just in me telling stories about life and my family. Um, For those of you just tuning in uh, and not familiar with mid-Michigan or Michigan, Grand Ledge is a small community just west of Lansing, which is the capital city, so kind of mid-Michigan region. We talked about it in the last episode about Brandon Michener. He and his friends were all Grand Ledge boys. And we talked about it way back in the first season in episode 16 when Danny shared the story of Rana Ray Cipher the 10-year-old girl who was kidnapped outside of a neighborhood shop in downtown Grand Ledge by an escaped mental patient from the Ionia Asylum. Rana Ray's body was found on the banks of the Grand River beneath the Grand Ledge water tower a few hours later. As shocking as the crime was, it was made all the more shocking by the fact that it happened just nine months after another brutal murder in Grand Ledge on the banks of the same river just a few miles away. On July 7, 1966, a knock on the door of the Reynolds home in the middle of a summer day led to a horrific tragedy and the birth of the Grand Ledge Slayer. Before we get started today, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Anna Luisa. Summertime is filled with celebrations, weddings, graduation parties, showers, birthdays, and what better way to show someone you care than with a little something sparkly? Anna Luisa, that's A-N-A. L-U-I-S-A, makes ethically sourced jewelry with recycled materials in small batches that are kind to the earth. And right now, so dead listeners get 10% off anything on the website. Just visit analuisa.com slash so dead and use code so dead at checkout. Already perused the website last time I talked about it? Well, peruse it again because new collections are added every Friday, so there's always something new to see. 
Pieces start at just $39, and that's before the 10% discount for So Dead listeners. Again, it's Anna Luisa Jewelry, A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A. Their pieces are timeless and versatile. My favorite piece is the necklace I got. It's called the Nina. It's subtle, and it's so lightweight that I forget that I have it on, but it adds just the right amount of sparkle to my jeans and t-shirt ensembles. So go to analuisa.com slash so dead and use promo code so dead to save 10% off anything on the website. All right, let's get into it. The Reynolds family lived on the outskirts of Grand Ledge in a cute little cottage on the Grand River located at 13762 Lawson Road. Most of Grand Ledge was rural in the 1960s. A lot of it still is, but the Reynolds home was exceptionally rural. Dirt road, surrounded by trees, river right in the backyard, lots of space between houses, really, really nice area. The Reynolds moved from Mankato, Minnesota to Grand Ledge in 1958. John, who also went by Jack for some reason, I don't really understand that John-Jack thing, but I know it was very common. Um, John and Betty had two daughters, Jillian and Penelope, who they called Jill and Penny. John worked as the manager at Chapel Hill Cemetery in Lansing. Uh, Betty, who was legit blonde bombshell gorgeous, seriously, she looked like a freaking movie star, she stayed home with the couple's children. The family attended Trinity Episcopal Church in Grand Ledge, and John and Betty were members of the Independent Order of Oddfellows, or OOF, as I like to call it. We've talked about that before, too. Uh, So the girls attended school in Grand Ledge, and the family was well-liked by their neighbors. By all accounts, the Reynoldses led a peaceful, happy, quiet life until the afternoon of July 7th, 1966. July 7th was a Thursday. It was sunny, hot as balls, probably super muggy since the Reynoldses, the Reynolds family, lived so close to the water. I hate that. I hate when last names end with S's. My maiden name ended with an S. And like, how do you say it? Do you just, the Reynolds? No, because you need another S, right? The Reynoldses. And then that sounds funny. I Okay, let's move on. 37-year-old Betty was mowing the lawn in her bathing suit a little afternoon when a sky-blue sedan pulled into her driveway. Out stepped a tall, muscular man with a tan, dark hair, 25 to 30 years old, wearing sunglasses and a checkered sports coat. 10-year-old Jillian and 7-year-old Penny answered the front door when he knocked. He asked if their mother was home, so they called for Betty and she came inside. Betty seemed to recognize the man, so she let him into the house. The adults went into the kitchen while the curious little girls eavesdropped from the living room. Betty went into her bedroom and put on a dress over her bathing suit and then returned to the kitchen. She and the man chatted and laughed for a little bit, and then she told her girls to run over to the neighbor's house to play. So they left. About an hour later, the girls returned home and they saw the shiny blue car still parked in the driveway, so they left again and went back to their friend's house. A little while later, they returned again, and this time the car was gone. But so was their mother. The girls found the house abandoned, blood on the floor, and the window to their parents' bedroom shattered. They knew something was very wrong, obviously, so they took off running down the dirt road looking for help. They found a neighbor outside, and they took him back to the house. He saw the blood in the broken window, and he called the police and then Betty's husband. John rushed home from his office in Lansing. The police arrived with tracking dogs, and the search for Betty Reynolds began. 
About 9 o'clock that night, a tracking dog led a state trooper to the rocky cliffs along the Grand River that we refer to as the Ledges, about 500 feet behind the Reynolds home. There, the search for Betty ended, and the search for the Grand Ledge Slayer began. Betty was nude, her hands bound behind her back. She'd been stabbed 17 times in the chest, and her throat had been sliced so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. Inside the Reynolds home, the police found the murder weapon, a seven-inch butcher knife, in the trash under the sink still covered in blood. Due to the lack of blood in the home, there was some, but not nearly enough, given Betty's grisly murder. Authorities determined that she'd likely been murdered outside, near where her body was found. The killer then returned to the house and waited for Jill and Penny, who had seen his face, to come back and was planning to kill them, too. When they didn't come back home in a timely fashion, the killer gave up, tossed the knife in the trash, and left, his shiny blue car kicking up dust on the dirt road as he fled from the scene. The Reynolds girls were placed into protective custody by police. They were worried that the Slayer was going to go after them since they could identify him. The girls gave the man's description to police, and an incredibly fucking accurate sketch of the suspect was drawn up. As word of Betty's murder began to spread around town, Summer came to a screeching halt in Grand Ledge. People started locking their doors. Children weren't allowed to go outside. There wasn't a curfew enacted exactly, but authorities did encourage residents to stay at home, for women to always take an escort of some sort when going out. People were shook. Things like this did not happen in Grand Ledge. And I feel like I say that a lot, particularly about Grand Ledge. It's such a peaceful place, bad things don't happen here. But if I have to say it that frequently, if I have that many different stories about Grand Ledge to tell you where I have to say that, then I guess that means that bad things actually do happen here pretty fucking regularly. They're just swept under the rug quickly. Um, And that was especially the case back in the 60s. Once the sketch of the Grand Ledge Slayer was released, tips began pouring into the police department, over 300 of them in just a few days. Neighbors reported that the day before Betty's murder, a man matching the Slayer's description, driving a sky blue sedan, was in the neighborhood asking for directions to Lawson Road, Betty's Road. So police began to think that the murder was maybe premeditated because he was looking for her the day before and then came back the next day. But why? Uh, Although Betty was nude, she hadn't been raped, the house hadn't been robbed. What was the motive? The first suspect in the case was 22-year-old Neil Haynes from Grand Ledge, a man who was arrested on Monday, July 11th, so four days after the murder, for kidnapping a 16-year-old girl in Holt, which, if you're not local, Grand Ledge is just west of Lansing and Holt is just south of Lansing. And y'all, I thought this was just a side note to the story that I'm telling you, but we are about to take a whole ass detour for a minute or 10. So July 11th, a Sunday, Monday, Sunday, Sunday, Monday, a sunny Monday afternoon in the Lansing area, 16-year-old Judy Miller, the daughter of an Ingham County deputy, was at her family's Willoughby Road home in Holt by herself. Her mother called her from a service station down the road. Um, Why she called her, that part wasn't made clear, but she called her for some reason. And Judy said, just stay at the service station. I'm going to walk down there to meet you, which the service station was on South Cedar Street. The house was about a mile away on Willoughby. So 
Judy's mom is at the service station waiting for her, and Judy sets off walking down Willoughby Road toward Cedar along the railroad tracks. As she was walking, a man pulled up alongside her, pointed a twenty-two caliber pistol out the window. Window? Wow, uh, I cannot talk at all, but that's nothing new, is it? Um, pointed a gun out the window and ordered her to get into his vehicle. Once Judy was in the car, the man drove to a nearby cemetery. Judy told him, look, my mom is waiting for me and I should be there in a few minutes. And if I'm not there, she's going to freak out. My dad's a fucking cop. So you picked the wrong girl. You better just take me back. Drop me off at this gas station. No harm, no foul. And somehow whatever she said worked because he did it. He turned around, he drove her back to the service station, and as soon as he pulled in, she jumped out of the car and began screaming, call the police, call the police. She ran into the safety of her mother's arms as the station owner's two teenage sons hopped in their pickup truck and chased the kidnapper down. They caught up to him at the intersection of Willoughby and Eifert Roads and held him until police arrived. And guess who one of the first officers to arrive on scene was? Judy's dad. The articles that I found didn't make it clear whether he knew that his daughter was the victim before or after he arrested her kidnapper. But oh man, I bet you Neil had some bumps and bruises by the time he arrived at the police station. So anyway, the Ingham County Sheriff's Department is kind of reeling from this sudden burst of violence like, what just happened? And to one of our deputy's children in the middle of the day, in the middle of town no less, and then they run Neil Haynes's. I hate that. all of these names have S's at the end this week. Um, and then they run Neil Haynes's information and they see that he's from Grand Ledge, where there was just a brutal midday murder a few days earlier. And light bulb. The fact that Neil looked exactly like the police sketch of Betty Reynolds' murderer solidified their suspicions. But the police quickly ruled Neil out as a suspect in the Reynolds case when they arrested another man for Betty's murder, who also looked exactly like the police sketch, the following day. We'll talk about Bitchface McGee in a minute, though, because I have a few more things I want to tell you about Neil Haynes first. So Neil, the police decided, did not kill Betty Reynolds, but he did kidnap a police officer's daughter a few days later. This fucker was married. He had a new baby at home. A judge declared him a criminal sexual psychopath for the attack on Judy Miller and sent him where else but to the Ionia Asylum for the Criminally Insane. All roads lead back to Ionia, right? Uh, he didn't stay there long, though. He escaped for a bit in 1968, and then he was sent to the Northville Psychiatric Hospital until he was discharged in 1971, Five years, five years after literally snatching a child off the streets, he was let out. He checked back into the Ionia Asylum voluntarily in 1973 and then was released again in 1974. He moved to Lansing, where he lived in a home at 1208 Bench Street near Potter Park Zoo. In 1975, when Neil was 31, his psychiatric treatment failed him in a big way. On Tuesday, July 22nd, an anonymous tipster called the Lansing Police Department and reported seeing a man drag a young girl into the bushes near the entrance of Potter Park Zoo. By the time police arrived, there was no one in the area. Two days later, on July 24th, a 28-year-old woman called police after escaping an attempted abduction. 
She was walking near the zoo when a man jumped out of the bushes, held a knife to her, grabbed her arm, and said, come with me. The two struggled, and the woman was able to get away and flag down a passing motorist for help. Two days after that, a 13-year-old girl was riding her bike past the zoo when a man pulled her off the bike, dragged her into the bushes, and tried to rape her, but thankfully was unsuccessful. The girl got away, and she was able to seek help. So, very clear pattern, every other day, a young woman or girl was being attacked by a man hiding in the bushes at Potter Park Zoo. So, on Monday, two days after the last attack, police officers hid in the bushes themselves, and they waited. They were prepared to stay all day, several days, several weeks, however long it took. But it only took about three hours for their perp to show up, looking for a new victim. And that man was Neil Haynes. He was arrested and he was charged with attempted abduction and rape for the attack on the 28-year-old and the 13-year-old. The first attack reported that week by an anonymous caller. They never found that victim, so they were never able to prosecute him for that. But... Once they had Neil Haynes in custody, they realized that he looked an awful lot like the suspect in one of the city's biggest cold cases at the time. On August 19th, 1972, 58-year-old Irene Waters got a phone call at 5 a.m. Woke her up. Um, The caller told her that the building that she worked in was on fire. She worked for a physician that treated patients in need of mental health. They said that she needed to come to the office and help remove the confidential medical records. So she got dressed, left her apartment building, which was located at 723 Seymour Street on Lansing's west side, and she went back behind the building to the parking lot where her car was parked. She got into her unlocked car where her killer was waiting for her. Neighbors heard her screaming, and they called 911. By the time police arrived, Irene had been strangled and stabbed to death. Police had no suspects and no motives in what was clearly a calculated, premeditated murder. But by 1975, they had two suspects, Neil Haynes, who we've just been talking about, and, wait for it, wait for it, Gary Addison Taylor. Do you remember him? I told you about him way back in episode 28. The bus stop phantom, the phantom sniper, the other Ted Bundy, that serial killer born in Howell, Michigan that nobody knows about. Um, Yeah, so I I legit squealed when I read that. I was like, you (laughs) have got to be kidding me. Uh, For what it's worth, I don't think that Gary Addison Taylor killed Irene Waters. He did hate women, and all of his victims were women, but they were all very, very young women, and she was almost 60, so I just, I don't see it. A lot of his attacks were also random, and this was no random crime. Whoever killed Irene lured her out of her house, waited for her in her car. They knew her, and they knew where she worked. They knew which car was hers. They knew her phone number, and they attacked her intentionally. Her work at a mental health facility in Lansing and Neil Haynes's history as a mental patient in Lansing does raise the eyebrow, though. And Neil was on convalescent leave from the Northville Psychiatric Hospital when Irene was murdered. And he did look exactly like that witness sketch. Irene's case is still unsolved as of right now, 2021, so I'm not sure if slash how they ruled Neil Haynes out as a suspect, but the only potential suspect mentioned in more recent articles about Irene is Gary Addison Taylor, which 
They don't even mention him by name most of the time, just some guy that killed women in Michigan, Washington, and Texas. I swear to you, he is the least known serial killer in all of the land. As far as what happened to Neil, I don't know. I couldn't find a single article about him after the one from July of 1975 when he was arrested and charged with kidnapping and attempted rape. But it's time to climb out of the Neil Haynes rabbit hole now because he's not the main focus of our story. And according to police, he's not the man that killed Grand Ledge housewife Betty Reynolds. Before I reveal the identity of the Grand Ledge Slayer, I need to thank our other sponsor for today's episode, EveryPlate. EveryPlate makes home cooking easy and affordable. It's a much cheaper alternative to takeout, but just as delicious. I hate to cook, so getting a healthy dinner on the table every day is quite a challenge for me. But now I just let EveryPlate plan, shop, and deliver the ingredients and recipes right to my door. It's kind of like having my own personal shopper, but for family mealtime. Every plate is America's best value meal kit. One meal costs about as much as a cup of coffee from your favorite cafe. So if you think you can't afford it, think again. My entire family loves every plate. The most recent dish we tried was the Tuscan herbed chicken. Our whole kitchen smelled like an Italian restaurant. It was fabulous. And the food was so good, my son was asking how soon we could have it again before he was even done eating. The ingredients were fresh and flavorful. The recipe was easy to follow. Right now, Every Plate has a special offer for SoDead listeners. Try it for just $1.99 per meal, plus an additional 20% off your next two boxes by going to everyplate.com and entering code SoDead199. That's up to $100 in savings. It's time to get cooking good looking, and Every Plate can help. Just be sure to tell them I sent you. All right, so the Grand Ledge Slayer. The man who murdered wife and mother Betty Reynolds in the middle of a summer afternoon in her own home then planned to murder her two little girls but got bored waiting for them to come back to the house was identified as 25-year-old Richard Hare of Lansing. Hare was married with a young daughter and twins on the way. He grew up in Lansing's colonial village. Uh, He graduated from Sexton High School. He joined the Marines. Shortly after he returned home from the military in 1963, he met his wife and the mother of his children, Pauline DeRose. Pauline was the daughter of Lansing businessman Paul Amedio. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Paul Amedio, Amadeo, I'm not sure. I'm sorry. I'm butchering it. Um, AKA Harry DeRose. That one's easier to say, so that's the one I'm going to use. Harry DeRose was a well-known Lansing businessman. He was one of the proprietors of Lansing's Sin Black downtown, which was a strip of gay bars, adult bookstores, and strip clubs located where the Lansing Lugnuts baseball stadium now is. DeRose, a proud Italian-American, allegedly had ties to La Cosa Nostra, more simply known as the Italian Mafia. And when Richard Hare married into the family, he married into the family. In Hare's autobiography, because of course he wrote a book, he makes all kinds of outlandish claims, including knowing what really happened to Jimmy Hoffa. Um, So it's hard to take really anything that he said seriously, but allegedly he was his father-in-law's right-hand man in the Italian mob scene in Lansing. He also worked as a used car salesman, which was how he came to meet John and Betty Reynolds. John purchased a car from Richard Hare, 
After the deal was done, the bank found some discrepancies in the contract. Remember I told you that um, John also went by Jack, which again, I still don't understand that whole thing. Um, So when he was signing the documents, in some places he signed it as John Reynolds, and in some places he signed it as Jack Reynolds. And the bank was basically like, nope, pick one. You can't be just signing whatever name you like to call yourself on legal documents, bro. So until the error was corrected, the bank couldn't finalize the loan and Richard Hare would not be compensated for the sale. He called John Ronald. Nope, not John Ronald. He called John Reynolds a few times. He left messages, but he could never seem to reach him. So on the afternoon of July 7th, 1966, he just said, fuck it. And he decided to drive out to the Reynolds home and get the documents signed. And that, according to Richard Hare, is what he was doing at the Reynolds home that fateful day. Um, So, yes, he admitted that, yes, my car is the car that the girls saw. My face is the face that the girls saw. I was there that day. But here's what happened. His accounting of events is that he arrived at the Reynolds home, asked for John. Betty told him that John wouldn't be back until later. So he asked if he could call his boss and update him on the situation to get a directive as to what he was supposed to do next. You know, do I hang around Grand Ledge for several hours waiting for him to come back? Do you just want me to come back to the office and try again another day? Want me to track this fucker down at his office? What do you want me to do? While he was on the phone, he sensed that Betty was standing directly behind him and he thought he saw something shiny in her hand. So he began to feel like his life was in danger. He turned around and he punched her in the head as hard as he could. She hit the ground, bleeding, unconscious, her eyes wide open, and he figured that he'd killed her. But being the good guy that he was, he didn't want to just leave her on the kitchen floor. So he carried her into her bedroom, left her body lying on the bed, and left the house. That sounds, you know, legit, right? So he said he was confused, but also relieved when he saw Betty's murder reported on the news the following day, because he had not stabbed her, stripped her naked, tied her up, or taken her body down to the riverbank. So this man's honest-to-goodness defense was that after he killed Betty and or knocked her unconscious, someone else must have entered the house and done those other things to her. In the 50-plus years since Betty's murder that he's had to work on a story, that's the best that he's been able to come up with. Police were buying none of it, obviously, and they charged Richard Hare with the murder of Betty Reynolds. Just before his trial was set to begin, at which he most definitely would have been found guilty, Hare accepted a plea deal, and he pled guilty to second-degree murder. He was sentenced to 25 to 40 years at Jackson State Prison. Even after confessing, though, he maintained his innocence— He said he was tricked by his lawyer into confessing and that the entire justice system had it out for him because of his familial ties to Harry DeRose and La Cosa Nostra. So authorities wanted Harry DeRose, they couldn't get him, so they went after his son-in-law instead. All of that sounds like nonsense, and it is nonsense. I will say this, though. Um, I knew this story. I actually picked this story today because I thought it was going to be an easy one. Um, (laughs) It's not. I do this one on one of the Demented Mitten Tours, or I used to when those were a thing. So I had the research all done. I knew the story. I was just spiffing it up and making it a little more detailed when I found this fucking Neil Haynes rabbit hole. And now I've got 
some questions, right? Like the the whole Neil Haynes thing has me questioning things because the crimes are just so similar. Uh, I'm going to post on the So Dead page for this episode. I'll post the sketches of the murderers of Irene Waters and Benny Benny Reynolds, Betty Reynolds's killers, as well as mugshots of both Neil Haynes and Richard Hare because (laughs) they all look like the same thing. I mean, it's the same face. The, The two drawings and the two photos, it's the same face. It's so uncanny. Anyway, Richard Hare served about 12 years of a sentence before being released on parole. During that time, his first wife, Pauline, divorced him, and he married his second wife in a jailhouse ceremony. Shortly after he was released, that marriage fell apart. When Richard was 40 years old, he fell in love with the teenage babysitter his sister had hired to look after her children. The two fled the state together in search of better job opportunities than Richard would ever find in Michigan as a convicted murderer. They eventually married, they had two daughters together, they settled in Arizona. Richard wrote a book about his life called Inside Outside to be Continued, and it's something. (laughs) The thing that really struck me about it, I'm actually pissed I spent money on it because I know he gets some of that, but I had to read it. Uh, The thing that really struck me about it was that he was off by an entire year on the date of Betty Reynolds' murder. Now, I know that men are notorious for forgetting important dates, but the date of the murder you claim you were wrongly convicted of, that seems like something most people would be able to remember. In response to Richard Hare's book, his son, who was born while Richard was in prison, wrote his own book called The Murderer's Son, which completely discounts his father's defense. And I can't imagine that that was too hard to do because it's literally the most ridiculous fucking thing I've ever heard. Anywho, these days, the Grand Ledge Slayer is known around his current hometown of Flagstaff, Arizona by another name entirely, Santa Claus. For several years, he's been playing Santa for the Toys for Tots organization. When asked by a reporter why Toys for Tots would hire a convicted murderer to work so closely with children, a representative for the organization said, nobody thought much of it. So they knew about his past and they just didn't think much of it. Apparently, everyone deserves a second chance. Even the Grand Ledge Slayer. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. My main, well, my only source for today's episode was newspapers.com. So many old newspapers. Um, There are no stories, books, articles, podcasts, videos, none of that about these cases. The Buddy Reynolds murder, the Irene Waters murder, this Neil Haynes guy that might be a fucking serial killer from Lansing. We just got to piece it together. Come on, super sleuths, help me out here. Yeah, so all, all of this came from old newspapers. Thank you for that. Now it's time for a little liquid cheese before we wrap this one up. Uh, Today I'm going to tell you guys about a time that I got away with a crime. Kinda, sorta. I guess it was a crime. I don't know. And I really hope the statute of limitations has expired. I feel like it probably has. (laughs) I chose this one today. And now that I'm getting ready to say it, I feel like I've told you it before. But if I forgot, then maybe you forgot. So it'll just be new to all of us again. Okay? Okay. Um, I picked this one because 
It felt appropriate. Uh, it happened at Lansing Lugnut Stadium, and we talked about Lugnut Stadium in today's episode, the home of the former Sin Black. So, the year that Lansing got its minor league baseball team, I want to say it was 95 or 96, I worked there. Me and my best friend, Trini, we worked there together that first summer, their opening season. It was so fun, right? It was a new thing. It was a big thing to come to Lansing. Everyone was excited. Lots of jobs and lots of jobs for teenagers. We were 15, I want to say, when we started working there. Maybe 16, but I think 15. Really young, didn't know what we were doing, didn't get a ton of training. We worked before the games. We worked in the picnic area. So basically big corporations could come and have parties and we would serve them their their catered food and all of that. And there were some things that happened, some things that went down because we weren't well-trained, we weren't well-supervised. But during the games, I had a second job. I worked at um, the pretzel stands, the little mobile tented pretzel stands. There was four or five of them around the whole stadium. My friends worked at all of them. And so I often hung out with them after the game, after my job was done and the game was starting, right? The fun part, I would hang out with my friends at their pretzel stands. So eventually the guy that was in charge just was like, hey, you're here all the time anyway. Why don't you just do it? Why don't you run one of the pretzel stands if you're going to be hanging out around them all the time? So again, very little training as in like one day I was actually watching my friend work and then the next day I was on my own with my very own pretzel stand and I was 15. I didn't know anything about anything. I still don't know anything about most things but uh, so I still vividly remember at the end of the night when he was closing everything up he took his little metal pan full of hot charcoal and dumped it in the trash I swear he did. I know now that he must not have because like, duh, nope, don't do that. You're going to start a fire. But in my mind, that was the final task in taking care of things. So at the end of my first shift by myself, I took my pan and I was in the outfield. I was in the outfield, uh, right field, I want to say. I took my pan full of hot charcoals and I went and dumped <laughs> dumped them into the nearest trash can. Park was closing. Everybody left and went home. And in the middle of the night, someone called 911 to report that the stadium was on fire. Not the stadium, but one of the trash cans in the stadium was on fire. So the police department, or not the police department, maybe they did. I don't know. I wasn't there. I was 15. I was at home in bed. But the fire department had to come out, put out the fire. The next day, everybody was talking about like, oh my God, somebody set one of the trash cans on fire. And then when I saw which trash can it was, um, I knew that I was the arsonist. I was so worried about getting in trouble. I didn't tell anybody. I might have told my friend that worked with me there. Um, I don't remember, though. I might not have. But literally, I didn't tell anybody. Like, I kept that secret for years and years. And now that it's been 25 plus years since that happened, Jesus Christ, I'm old. Um, now that it's been so long, I feel like I can't really get in trouble. So now it's more of a funny story than a, oh shit, I could go to jail for that story. But yeah, that is the time that I got away with a crime trying to burn down the Lansing Lugnut Stadium in their first season. 
I'm going to post on the Sodad Facebook page. Tell me about a time that you got away with a crime. Nothing like super serious and crazy that's going to get you in trouble. Just little stuff like burning down minor league baseball stadiums. It's fine. It's totally fine. All right. I think that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. A new episode of So Dead is coming your way in a couple of weeks. Be sure to follow me on all of the social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest, and my newest obsession, TikTok. I have just one TikTok account for all of the things, so like the podcast, the bookstore, life in general. I just, I can't handle another set of social media accounts. I can only do the one. So it's all under one thing. It's Scream Queen 517. So scream like you're screaming Queen 517. Go follow me there. Also, I did want to mention a couple of exciting things coming up in July. July 1st, the Dead Time Stories expansion is opening at 1134 South Washington Avenue in Lansing's Rio Town. So Dead Time Stories is located at 1132 1134 is right next door. It's actually the other half of my shop. Um, It was a salon. The salon closed. My landlord offered me the space. Had to jump on it, especially because my fucking thermostat's over on that side and I needed to be able to control my climate. So anyway, yeah, we're doing it. We just opened Dead Time Stories at the end of March at its new location, and now it's getting bigger. The new side is called the Screamatorium, and basically what we're going to do is Dead Time Stories will be just books and movies now, Uh, so we'll expand those sections, and then all of the gift items that we now carry, plus a bunch of more shit, is going over onto the other side. We're going to have a vintage candy counter, uh, an ice cream counter, all kinds of really fun stuff, and that starts on July 1st. So come visit, check it out. The other thing is July 26th, so month and a half from now, my new book, The Serial Killer Chronicles, comes out. It's the, the podcast, The Serial Killer Chronicles, basically in book form. Cereal, like the food, C-E-R-E-A-L. All, you know, It's all about the Kellogg's and their sanitarium and murders connected to the Kellogg's and all of that. It was a super fun project as a podcast, super cool project as a book, and I can't wait to share it with you guys in that form. Uh, For those of you that are not local, it is available now for pre-order on Amazon and all of those sites, Barnes & Noble and stuff. But I am going to obviously keep autographed copies at Dead Time Stories. So come in, see me, grab it from me, and get some ice cream, I guess, too, while you're there. Okay, now, that's really it. Um, I'm done. It's goodbye. Time to go. So until next time, stay safe, stay sane. And keep shining, you magnificent what-the-fucks.